0: Lord, these words that we sing of the gospel are a gift, they're a gift from above. Jesus paid it all, and all to him we owe. We are grateful for the salvation that is in his name. Lord, we recognize before your throne now that we do not make enough of it. We do not appreciate this gift as we should. It does not affect our lives as it ought. It does not inspire our witness as it should. But Lord, we pause here to thank you that there is an eternal home for your people, where there is a prophet, priest, and king who reigns. Lord, I pray that together as we come before the Word today that we will feed upon it as your people and that you will draw to Christ those who know him not in a saving way at this point in their lives. We plead that you draw them to that light and plead that you sanctify now your church through your Word as we contemplate it together. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Please be seated. The more important a position in our society, the greater the qualifications necessary to fulfill that role. Now, we may well question if that principle holds true in politics, I will concede. But imagine a young father who has a serious heart condition that requires a complicated surgery, and his young daughter says, Mom, why don't you do the surgery? You love Dad more than anybody else. Oh, No, dear, Uh, mom's not qualified to do that. It takes a highly qualified surgeon who's passed many courses of study, participated in in countless training situations to open up someone's heart and to actually repair it. Mom's not qualified to do that. Strict qualifications are necessary for one to become a surgeon, a military general, The conductor of an orchestra to fly an airplane. And even if you are certain that you know what the Minnesota Vikings must do to win a game, if they made you head coach today, you'd be lost. They'd hand you that play sheet and put the headphones on, and you'd say, I have no idea what I'm doing. Now, I know I could tell them how to win, but that's another story. No, I'd be lost. There's qualifications that are necessary. And this brings us back to our consideration of last week. We desperately need a good high priest. A priest who stands between us as sinners and God as final judge. And the author of Hebrews reveals that we have such a high priest. Our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now in chapter 5, the author writes to assure us that that great high priest is is wholly qualified for this role. The assurance we find to this end in chapter 5 is calibrated to help these original recipients to withstand persecution. It is to inspire all of us to hold fast to our confession of faith to the end, come what may. And so while we may, as believers, assume the qualification of Christ as priests, It is important to our perseverance to see it, to understand it, to perceive this qualification. As members of Eden Baptist Church, we are facing increasing pressure from our world to abandon the faith. And more intense forms of persecution seem to be gathering like storm clouds around us. We need to know that we have a great high priest, and we need to know that God has placed him there, appointed him there, and that he is supremely qualified. This will aid us in our perseverance. So we considered last week, and by way, somewhat of review here on this first point, our great high priest of the new covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 14 of chapter 4, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. That's a declaration of truth. Knowledge that we must know, believe, and trust that we have a great high priest. Our priest who mediates between us and God has passed through the heavens. We talked about that at some length last week. He has come into the very presence of God. In parallel to the priest, the high priest on the Day of Atonement, going into the holiest place, Jesus, in a superior and exalted way, has entered into the very throne room of God with blood for sinners. And so he mediates there between us and God. This follows through then in verses 14 through 16 with two imperatives. The first found at the end of verse 14. Here's the first, let us hold fast our confession. And verse 16 is the second, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So because of who Jesus is, And what he has done for us, if we get it, we will hold fast to our confession. For this is who he is. Our confession of faith in him as Savior. And it will lead us to come to the throne of grace in prayer. I wonder, just to ask you from last week, did this verse, let us draw Then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Did our time considering that passage last week change your prayer life this week? Did we remember? Are we coming to that throne of grace? Is this a pattern in our lives to pour out our concerns, our petitions, our prayers, our words of confession to the Lord at his throne? This throne is open, follower of Jesus. Go there. Run there. Come to his feet and lay out your requests. This is the call that we have here. Remembering verse 15 as well, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near. He understands And he is now, we are going to see in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 5 that he is eminently qualified. He is supremely qualified as our great high priest. The qualifications of the high priest under the old covenant are laid out first here in verses 1 through 4 so that we can then understand the high priesthood of Jesus in verses 5 through 10. Notice verses 1 through 4. Thinking of the old covenant priesthood here, for every high priest, chosen from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Just thinking of that as we're singing here. Why do we care about Old Testament Israel's ritual sacrifice? How can you ask American Christians in 2021 to really care? Why does it matter? We have to get ourselves out of we're the center of the universe. And think back historically to patterns and examples that God has given to us in his providence and in his revelation and to recognize that we are to build upon these concepts and ideas. We will not know Jesus better by ignoring that history. We know him better By somewhat understanding it. And obviously we're very distant from that sacrificial system. But considering here the high priesthood under the Old Covenant is important to our Christian faith on a couple of levels here that he brings out in these first four verses. So let's look at it, verse 1 of chapter 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. A pretty good definition of what a priest is. Notice here the word chosen, or it's more literally could be translated taken, here in the sense of separated from. So the Levitical, the the Levites, that tribe, out of that tribe, particularly uh, uh, those who were of the uh, offspring of Aaron, the lineage of Aaron, were the. Priests and the high priest always came from Aaron's clan out of the tribe of Levi, separated from them. It's a reference to Aaron's lineage. The priests were men commissioned, we notice here, to act on behalf of men in relation to God. They stand there to represent us. That's why we were saying last week we need a good priest. We need someone to stand between us and God so that we can approach God on his terms. So the high priest represented sinners before God. How specifically did the high priest do this, verse 1, by offering gifts and sacrifices for sins? That's straightforward. This was the high priest's task, especially on the Day of Atonement. Grain and wine gifts and animals sacrificed in the place of sinners were offered to satisfy the wrath of God against sin and to provide a covering of forgiveness for the sinner. All of this awaiting, obviously, the work of Christ, but in this place in salvation history, this is the way of coming before God. And the priest brought the sinner to God on his terms in this way. This was his job. Now in verse 2, the author focuses on the humanity of the priest in rendering the spiritual service, linking him to the sinners that he's representing. He can deal, verse 2, gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Who's coming to the priest? People that are sinful. People that are wayward. People that are ignorant of what is right and wrong at times. But he can deal gently with them because he himself is beset with weakness. That word beset, an interesting word. It's almost like it just hangs off of him. Weakness is everywhere through him as well and with him. Now, the word gently, it's a hard word to translate into English. And you wouldn't translate it gently. You'd use probably a paragraph to explain the word. So it's a challenge to us in our language. But let me try to do that just briefly. The Greek word was used to describe a balanced way of life, a balance that avoided anger on one hand and apathy on the other. So don't think gently just as tenderly, very narrow definition, but expand it to be a gentleness that doesn't lean too far toward anger and frustration on the one hand but not toward apathy and softness on the other. So the word describes the demeanor toward others that is not harsh and critical, nor soft and sentimental. That's the ideal priest. If you would come as an Israelite to the priest, this is the priest that you'd want to meet. The ideal high priest was one who said to worshipers, you, okay, here's the, here's the, Firm, loving side. You need to repent from your sin on God's terms. But would also say, let me help you, brother. Let me help you, sister. I understand your distress. You see? This, you must deal with sin. But I understand your weakness. Let's come together and let's approach God. God on his terms. I think there's certainly an application for us parents, Bible teachers, Bible study leaders, small group, home group leaders, pastors, all of us who in any way, shape, or form shepherd others. Let's listen. Let's take this to heart. Do we exude a gentle spirit that evidences we have been humbled by our own sin? Do we simply pontificate and say, this is the way that it is? Or do we come across as parents, as leaders, as we teach the Bible, as we pastor and shepherd, with the sense, yes, this hangs from me too, Do we display, on the other hand, the kind of love that patiently, winsomely, and with keen understanding encourages people to repent of sin and walk in obedience to Christ? There is no place in the Christian church for arrogant, demanding, impatient leaders. There is no place in the Christian home for arrogant, demanding, impatient parents. No place for those who come across as if they do not recognize this fact. I am the greatest sinner that I will ever know. I am the greatest sinner that I will ever truly know. Sin is an enemy that we fight together, knowing that we are all beset with weakness. We don't know all the answers. We don't always do the right thing. We fall short in loving one another. And in that fight against sin, there is therefore no place for a frustrated, demanding, impatient, know-it-all spirit. As parents and spiritual shepherds, may God help us display that balance of life. The gentle patience and faithful counsel that befits sinners helping sinners understand grace. May that hover over us as a spirit in a church and in our families, in our relationship with others. This was the spirit of the ideal priest. Who because of his own sinful weakness, verse 3, because of this... This sinful weakness, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins. Just as he does for those of the people. So he stands between God and the people to sacrifice for their sins, but also for his own. We read that earlier today in the book of Leviticus. That was the point of that reading in part. To see that the priest himself offers sacrifices for himself and for his family. And in the tradition of the high priestly ritual of the first century, there was a formula whereby he confessed his sins, those of his household, and offered sacrifices of atonement so that he could represent the people of God. Now, at verse 4, the focus shifts to appointment to the office of high priest. So there's identification with the people. And now there is official appointment, verse 4. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. So the high priesthood under the Mosaic Covenant was not a political position to win. It wasn't a career path to choose. It was an appointment, not an accomplishment. It was an office by way of divine calling. So the high priesthood began that way with Aaron and continued to track that way for centuries as God ordered it. We get that. We see that. We could read the whole book of Leviticus, the whole Pentateuch, to get a full understanding of the place of priesthood in, under the Old Covenant. But we have enough here in verses 1-4. through 4. Help us understand what an ideal priest was. What was their function? How did they qualify? Now in verses 5-10, through the author takes these very concepts of priesthood under the Old Covenant and relates them to Jesus. Some will get this, but there is a chiasm here that is operating. We have the Old Covenant High Priest, his identification with humanity, His qualification. Now in reverse order, we're going to consider Jesus' qualification, His identification, and the final conclusion that He is our great high priest, which is where we begin. Verse 14, chapter 5, verse 1, is that emphasis. So, as we proceed, we come then now in verses 5 through 10 to the supreme qualification of the high priest of the new covenant, our Lord and Savior. He is, first of all, as with priesthood under the Aaronic system, he is appointed by God. That's the point of verses 5 through 6. Notice here the the emphasis. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he, says, as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The point is, Christ did not exalt himself to that position, but God appoints him to it. That's the summary idea. But let's pick it apart here for a bit. Verse 5 is a quotation of Psalm 2 and verse 7. There's something amazing going on here. This book is deeper than we're going to ever get anywhere close to the bottom of it. But what the author does is profoundly important here. Notice that Jesus is not created Son of God, but he is appointed Son of God. This confirms our interpretation in chapter 1 that this is a reference to the risen Christ's ascension to the Father's right hand. Not to his birth. And certainly not to his creation in history past. But it's a reference to his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Having completed redemption, he is seated there at the Father's right hand, ascends to the Father's throne where the Son does all that the Father does. But what we learn here, and this is the profound contribution that the author makes what we learn here is that christ ascends not only as king but as priest using psalm 2 and verse 7 as evidence of this jesus is anointed son of god in power as romans 1 puts it reigning as king as the son who does what the father does ascended to the father's throne and he's seated on the throne of the universe as supreme high priest as well. So the author quotes Psalm 2 7 in chapter 1 to prove Christ's kingly rule. And he quotes Psalm 2 in verse 7 again to prove Christ's priestly role. The concept of a king priest comes from where? Out of his thumb? Out of his hat? Just making this up somewhere? No, he goes back in verse 6 to Psalm 110 and verse 4. In Psalm 110 and verse 4, we read, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I, I don't know. I'd love to talk to somebody who read Psalm 110 verse 4 in its original form and say, what on earth do you make of that verse? My guess is everybody just skipped it. I don't know. I, I don't think that's what David's doing there. I think he does understand what's going on to some degree, but we don't have evidence that people caught this until this author right here. There's just not a history of understanding Psalm 10, verse 4, as speaking of the priestly order of Jesus Christ. But that is the case, and we're helped to see it here. So the common approach of the author is to mention ideas almost as teasers and to leave them hang there waiting for later development. So I'm going to do the same and stay off of Melchizedek today because he's going to do a lot to expand on this Melchizedek guy. Suffice it to say here that Jesus is a superior high priest because he is not of Aaron's clan. And we're at this point here where we really ought to have tingling skin. I mean, we may not be there, and you may say, I'm I'm struggling to follow what you're even talking about. But he's he's going really deep here. And as he quotes Psalm 110 and verse 4, he is speaking then of the supremacy of Christ's priesthood. We have these centuries of the priests of Aaron. But now we have one who is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus, of course, was not born of the tribe of Levi. So he could not be an Aaronic priest. He he, he was born of the tribe of Judah, the lineage of many kings, but no priest. But again here, the author's unique contribution to Christology, a high Christology, is to see the linkage between king and priest in Melchizedek and the eternal priesthood of King Jesus. So Melchizedek, suffice it to say here, was a king and a priest. Psalm 110.4 is pointing to Messiah Jesus as king and priest as does Psalm 2 and verse 7. So this high Christology links together Jesus' sonship as king with his priesthood on the authority of Scripture. Again, more on that later in the series, God willing. But the point of verses 5 through 6, okay, if you've lost there, come back to me. This is straightforward. Verses 5 through 6, Jesus is appointed by God. He is qualified in his appointment. In fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Secondly, now, we move to his identification with humanity. Verse 7. His identification with humanity. In the days of his flesh, Jesus, literally he, but that's what it's speaking of. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications and loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. In the days of his flesh speaks of his incarnation, when Christ, the second member of the triune being, took on flesh and walked among us. Jesus faced human weakness and temptation to the point where he was moved to loud crying and weeping in prayer. Now certainly, those prayers were epitomized where? Epitomized in the trial of Gethsemane. But notice that the reference is to days plural. We have no idea how many times Jesus may well have been reduced to loud tears and weeping in prayer. We do know that he lived under severe pressure. He was hunted like an animal, viciously attacked by those in power, endured the sheer exhaustion of speaking to large crowds in the open air and dealing with people's demands upon his time and his attention. He nearly had to escape. To get alone with God in prayer. We cannot really understand the pressures with which he lived, but I wonder if there weren't many days where he came to the point of weeping in prayer for God's deliverance. Jesus was not afraid of death. His response on the night of the storm in Galilee, I think, puts that to rest. Small boat is heaving all over a violent sea in pitch darkness. It's nearly being swamped. Death is stalking him and the disciples in this small vessel. And he's the picture of calm. Why on earth are you guys afraid? And I always say, well, I'd think, why on earth would you think we wouldn't be? This is terribly fearful. He's unafraid. What he feared ultimately was not death as such, but the abandonment by the Father. What he feared, what he agonized over in the garden, what he suffered on the cross, was being covered with the filth of human sin. Of being separated because of that sin from his Father. And crying out ultimately, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Experiencing that moment of utter forsakenness is what moved him to tears, certainly. But in response to his reverent prayer, the Father sustained him and ultimately delivered Jesus from death by resurrection. But the long and the short of it is that, verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. We have to understand this carefully and think about it. Although he was a son, that is, even though he was God's son, against all expectation, is the idea, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He was the son of the living God, and his God, very God, had nothing to learn. But in his humanity, Jesus suffered the most severe trial any human being has ever suffered. Can I say it again? He suffered the most severe trial that any human being has ever suffered. His separation from the Father as he bore God's wrath in the place of sinners yielded to Jesus the ultimate experience of obedience in the midst of suffering. Now I want us to concentrate here on two observations on that point. I will tell you up front, they're controversial They will lead you to be criticized deeply by other Christians, if you believe what I'm saying. But I believe on the authority of this verse, it is right for us to say, first of all, that Jesus is the supreme high priest because he experienced the most severe depths of temptation and suffering. Are you with me on that? You will never suffer more deeply than Jesus suffered. No one... Ever. Think of that. Let it settle in. Do you believe that? I think there's a lot of times in our experiences we really quickly forget that. Secondly, the issue for Jesus was what? It was not mental health, it was not psychological well being. It was not making sure to take care of himself in the midst of his troubles. The issue for Jesus in the deepest depths of suffering was what? Obedience. It was obedience to the Father. The deepest suffering and the response is I must do the will of my Father. The ultimate example of this was in Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours be done. And the ultimate way then, and this is, I know, offensive in our world, but I think the ultimate way for us to endure suffering is to think of obedient trust in God. As we turn in prayer to the throne of grace, and come before the sovereign Savior. What I need to do, yes, I do need to take care of myself on some level. There's some point there, of course. But my focus needs to be in the midst of whatever suffering you're facing, whatever temptation you're enduring, to say that Jesus went deeper. And I need to consider how, do I submit to the will of God in the midst of these trials? That is the counsel of Scripture, where it is taking us here very naturally. So think Jesus suffered the deepest human agony that has ever been experienced, and God's revealed counsel to us is to concentrate on obedience to God's will as we approach the throne of grace. You will be very thoroughly ridiculed if you truly believe that. For what we are saying is trust and obey and pray. That's not the answer to suffering in our world. It's not the answer to which many Christians cling. But I think as we follow the true example of Christ, we see this is the way through is to know that whatever I'm suffering, there is a call from God for me. And I can trust Him and obey. As I pour out my requests at the throne of grace. Now, learning obedience does not suggest that Jesus was disobedient. Rather, it means that His obedience as a man came to full flower by obeying the Father in the midst of the deepest of all human suffering. Ultimately, that meant enduring the tortures of the cross. It meant bearing the hideous weight of our sins and suffering God's wrath in our place. It takes obedience to the sovereign God to endure that. If you imagine the foolishness of standing at the foot of the cross and saying, Jesus, are you taking care of yourself? And he's saying, not my will, but yours be done. And in it, he endured. And so, we run to the, to the throne. Chapter 4 and verse 16. Verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Here's the outcome of it. Jesus was not Imperfect. But Jesus, in his humanity as our Savior, came to experiential completion through his suffering. Through his suffering, in his humanity, he was brought to completion. So the Jesus that's speaking at the temple at age 12 will deepen as a man through the suffering that he endures as he passes through it in obedient trust to the Father. So notice here, those who receive salvation by faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, how are they described? They're described as those who obey him. Do you see that in verse 9? He became the source of eternal salvation, not just temporary covering, but to eternal salvation to all who obey him the linkage to Jesus' obedience and our obedience is unmistakable. We are not saved so as to feel better. We're not saved so as to overcome our hang-ups, to discover our true worth, to merely receive a ticket to heaven. We are saved to be empowered to align our will with God's, to walk in obedience to Him Come what may in our lives, this is preparing people for suffering. This is preparing people for persecution. Verse 10 then, as he closes out, kind of puts together the two bookends... He is designated this one, the Savior, by God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And again, we'll, we'll look at that some length later by God's grace. But we've moved in chapter 5 from the Aaronic priesthood in verse 1 to the eternal and supreme priesthood of Jesus Christ in chapter 5. But in an effort to deepen the roots of our faith, we must come to terms then today with the fact that our Savior The Lord Jesus Christ is supremely qualified to serve as the one and only final and absolutely sufficient high priest. We'll get to that idea as well later in the book. But the fact that Jesus is this priest indicates that there is no other. He is indeed supreme. But if I speak to you today and you say, I am separated from Christ, you might know his name, you might know some facts about him, you certainly would not look to him as your Lord and Savior, as one who has been born anew by repentant faith in his death and resurrection. I would say to you, there is a great high priest. Take that home with you and contemplate it. He understands your confusion. He understands your ignorance more than you understand it. He knows the depths of your suffering. He, whatever suffering you have done at the hands of others or through circumstances in life, he's gone deeper. This is a high priest you want to know. And he's been appointed by God himself, the God of heaven and earth, to be the final and sufficient High priest i just ask that you think on that that you contemplate it but understand that this high priest calls you then to repentant trust in his work in your behalf to give up your will to god should sound frightening it's not an easy call to say not my will but yours be done but as we do that with this great high priest, there's grace. There's rescue. You need a high priest. Know that one stands ready to bridge the gap between you as sinner and God as eternal judge of the living and the dead. And I would plead with you in his name, turn in repentant faith from your sin. Throw your trust upon the mercies of Christ, whose death alone atones for sin. Think on it today. For those of us who have that assurance that we have been born again, that we are holding fast to our confession, may the truth of our Supreme High Priest encourage our hearts to walk in reverent fear toward God and to face any call to suffer as an assignment from a sovereign God to learn obedience through what we suffer. May this faith fit us to withstand suffering. And may it fit us to withstand persecution. He is that High Priest. We can run to Him. We can trust Him. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for the wonder of your word we don't always know why you steer us where you do to consider what you would have us to consider but as this book unfolds we see the very significant importance of understanding that Jesus is supremely qualified as the final high priest and in this we rest and trust And Lord, teach us through his suffering to walk in obedient trust. May we not be taken off the path by those who would construct an alternative approach. But I pray that in simple faith, in straightforward trust in you, we would cling to you in all of our smaller times of suffering in precisely the way that Jesus did when he came to the very verge of death and said, into your hands I commit my spirit. May we walk in that same obedience. May we learn through our suffering patient endurance and trust in you. I pray that you'll do a work of deep spiritual growth in our lives as a church as we consider Christ's example. In his name that we pray. Amen.